not an astronaut, but talking about space, we taking it up. Footprints across the land, not making it up. This is a reclaiming song. This is a reminder, dog. We resilient, withstanding, we strong. We taking up space, we belong. To the young kid, impressionable tongue kid, intelligible sung kid. Step out into the world, kid. Bring it back, bring it back. You know concrete, but you can shape the sky too. Go ahead, do something new. Make sure you see it through. Take up that space. Enjoy the pursuit. Let them talk about the kid that flew. We got your back because we look like you. On today's episode, we talk with Jordan Dresser about his pursuits of his passions and what it means to pursue your passions in an academic setting as an indigenous person. We also talk about his work with the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and the repatriation efforts of the Northern Arapaho Tribe. I also want to make it very clear that there are 570 plus federally recognized indigenous tribes. And what we discussed today about the repatriation efforts are not reflective of each of those individual tribes. Even here at home, I want to make it clear that what we're speaking on today may not necessarily be reflective of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDOT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Rapo tribes. Our goal is to help keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that seatbelts are the single most effective traffic safety device for preventing death and injury? Simply wearing your seatbelt in a car reduces your risk of death in an accident by up to 45% and by 60% in a pickup truck. Let's celebrate life. Buckle up for life. The Indian Relay Podcast is made possible by the Institute of Tribal Learning at Central Wyoming College. The Institute coordinates American Indian services through continued education on historical and contemporary issues. CWC proudly serves the two nations of the Wind River Reservation, and through the Institute, they seek to provide positive influences to educate students, along with tribal and non-tribal community members on American Indian issues on a local and national scale. To support the Institute and its mission, or to learn more, email Ivan Posey, iposey at cwc.edu. That's I-P-O-S-E-Y at cwc.edu. Here on the Wind River Indian Reservation, we have stories to tell, history to share, and wisdom to give. On this show, we share the well-roundedness of our people. In that process, we break the mold placed on us and reclaim our identity, Northern Rapo and Eastern Shoshone. We are two nations and one community. This is Indian Relay, a Wind River Indian Reservation podcast. Hello, all my relatives. My name is Jakahe Black, and I belong to the Northern Arapaho Tribe. Thank you again for joining us on another episode of Indian Relay. We're on a really good journey here. And I'm very excited for where we're going, and I'm excited that you're joining us along the way. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to send a shout out to Noah Pakotis and JG Pakotis and DCM Collective. They're responsible for the intro and the outro music on our episodes. You can find 
Noah Pakotis and JG Pakotis on Instagram, as well as DCM Collective on Instagram. All of their music is made in-house through DCM Collective, and they have a lot of big projects coming up. They're working with some really big hip-hop artists, so please go check them out and show them some love. Ha-ho to our relatives over at DCM Collective. Today's guest is Jordan Dresser. Jordan has organized public relations at the Wind River Hotel and Casino in Riverton, Wyoming since 2009. Prior to that position, he worked in admissions at the Wind River Tribal College in Fort Washakie, Wyoming. Jordan earned a master's degree in museum studies from the University of San Francisco and a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wyoming. Hello, Jordan. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. You've done a lot of great work for the people here on the reservation, um, and I'm excited to share it. We're also joined here with Ivan Posey, who is co-hosting the show with us here. Yeah, good afternoon, and welcome, Jordan, for joining us. For our look forward to what you have to share. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. So you got your bachelor's in journalism. Um, can you talk to me about the process in which you discovered journalism and the process of pursuing a journalism degree? Well, I was always a decent writer, you know, and English was always like my favorite subject in high mm. school. I went to Lander mm. and, um, so I just always enjoyed it. And then I kind of realized that you could have a career out of writing, mm. you know, and I think writing is a skill that everybody should learn how to do mm-hmm. because it's going to take you really far. Mm-hmm. And so I got my start in print journalism. That's what it was called back then. And like, you know, this was the, when internet was just now starting up, you know, mm-hmm. um, and things were kind of getting big. So back then people were kind of separate. Like people did print, um, photography, um, web copy, des- web copy, um, design and, um, you know, television, radio. So everybody kind of had their own separate things. Mm-hmm. So I was in, started off in print. And um, slowly, though, everything started coming together and they'd call it multimedia. Mm. So everybody kind of had to learn how to do everything. But um, so I, I could write. I went to different internships. Um, my very first one was in Lincoln, Nebraska. I mm. interned at the Lincoln Journal Star. Oh, wow. So I was a reporter there. And um, being a reporter is like a lot of work, you know, but it's mm. exciting work. Mm. And I just really like really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um, so out of all the different mediums of writing, um, you know, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, short story, what drew you to journalism specifically? Journalism, you tell stories, you know, and um, you tell to me, the powerful thing about journalism is that you get everybody's voices and you mm. you don't tell the public what to think. You know, you don't tell people like this is what you should walk away from. You get everybody's voices and you let them make their own decision, you know. So whether it be about something controversial, you know, you get both sides of the story or whatever it may be. And you're just hopefully, hopefully hoping that the listener, the reader walks away with a better understanding of the world. So to me, that's what I really liked about journalism. And I was always interested in, in telling stories about Indian country because we we're always overlooked. And there was yeah. very few native journalists, mm. you know. So when I got my start, so 
there was different people. Mark Trehant, he was the trailblazer from Idaho. Um, Minnie Two Shoes, she was from Montana. Like those were the pioneers of native journalism. Mm. And so to me, I just looked at it as another way to keep the storytelling aspect of our culture alive. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you too for also pioneering that field, especially from around here in the Wind River Reservation. Thank you. Um, and then what was it about art or what was your first experience with art or maybe you went to an exhibit or something? Uh, what was that first experience like when you decided you wanted to get a master's in museum studies? That started off, um, well, I've always been a fan of art and and different museums and things like that. I was fortunate I went to like, I got to see museums from all over across the country, you know. But when when I was working at the casino, that's when they were building the hotel mm. and they wanted a cultural room. Oh, uh, yeah. And so I kind of got selected to do that and I had no experience so I just kind of worked with a lot of different people and we made the Northern Arapaho Experience Cultural Room. And it just tells a story about the Arapaho people. Yeah. And we worked with different artists and different places to get the items. And then so it was a huge process. And it was funny because we were like Googling things as we we're going. <laughs> we're like, yeah. yeah, we're like, what's a loan form? What's this? What's that? We would just Google it, you know. Mm. So then I was like, okay, one of us needs to learn how to do this. So then that's when I started looking at different museum um, studies programs. And there's not that many in the country. Um, so I found the one in San Francisco. I flew out there. And um, I mean, they had like hundreds of applicants for it. It was really competitive and they're only mm. going to accept 25. Well, so yeah. then I made the first cut and then I was thinking, okay, this is probably as far as I go. But then I got selected in the end. Mm. And that was just a huge turning point. And so then I moved to San Francisco, got immersed in the museum world, and it just was like a big learning experience. And we were really lucky because San Francisco is home to so many museums, art galleries. Um, so we got to learn a lot and we got to see a lot. Mm -hmm. So it really was something that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. And I think um, both of those degrees worked out really well for you, especially with the work you've been doing. Um, but before we get out of that, before we get to that, I have a question that I'm always interested in. Um, so growing up on the reservation, what was your experience like when you left the reservation to intern or to go to school? Because um, I think a lot of times, even if it's not a reservation, uh, maybe it's a trust land or just a indigenous community when young adults or young kids leave to go to school or pursue higher ed, sometimes it can be a little tough to balance that world and also balance being away from your family and your culture. And, you know, a lot of indigenous communities have a strong sense of community. So sort of leaving that sometimes can feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think what helped me kind of get ready was going to Lander, mm. you know, where, you were the minority, you yeah. know, and but prior to that, I went to school at Wamingen and all the way up until eighth grade, you know, so you're just around everybody who looks like you and sounds like you. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to Lander where there's very few people who do, you know, so I feel like it kind of got me ready, you know, and then when I went to Laramie, it was, you know, there's a, there's a native population there. So we would all get together. Mm -hmm. But when I'd go on my internships, like it would just be me sometimes. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. And that was really hard, 
you know, mm-hmm. and um, with my internships, with my very first one, the Nebraska one, it was really hard. Um, but I was really lucky that I got to meet, um, you know, the pioneers of native journalism and like, mm. they would take me under their wing and they'd help me and they would guide me and they'd be my mentors. Like, I remember I was halfway through my Nebraska one and I wanted to come home. I got really homesick and I just really wanted to come home. And, um, you know, I called my mom and my dad and I was like, I want to come home. And of course they're like, well, come home, you know, like <laughs> just, just do it yeah. and, um, forget it, you know? And then, um, one of my mentors, his name was Denny. He caught wind of what, what I was doing. Mm. So he called me. I remember like I was just getting something to drink at a Sonic parking lot. And then he called me and he was just like, I heard you're trying to quit. And I was like, yeah. And then I explained to him everything. And he listened to me, you know. And in the end, he was just like, no, you're staying there. He's like, you're doing really good. He's like, you're doing really, really, really good. You're writing really good stuff. He's like, you just need to stay there. And you, he said, do you want to be known as the quitter? And I was like, no, you know? So then I was like, okay, you're right. You're right. So I stayed. So I was really grateful for that. But it was it was a struggle. I remember I just really got, um, like, just overwhelmed. But then I just think, well, there's just a greater purpose for this. Mm. And I saw the value in it. And to me, it was just like, okay, well, it's like a progression. You got to do these things that, because, you know, when you start off as the intern, you, you kind of get the stories that nobody wants to do, <laughs> you know, and you got to, um, you got to really crawl before you walk. Yeah. So it was just a hustle. And, um, but in the end I was grateful. I was grateful that I stayed and I learned a lot about myself and it was just being able to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's definitely a balancing act. Um, you know, it's important to be around your family and culture as much as you can, but it's also important for us to occupy spaces away from the reservation. Uh, like you said, there weren't a lot of native journalists in Nebraska and like those areas you were at. So just to be able to occupy that space and, you know, let them know that we are here and that we don't only live within these confines is, is important work. Well, and then somebody once told me that like, if a kid sees somebody who looks like them and sounds like them in a certain position, then they know mm. it's a possibility, you know? So like that always stuck with me, you know? And I always think about that, like these kids need to see us as native people in all those spaces, like you mentioned mm-hmm. in all these different positions. Cause then they'll know it's a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess um, I'll chime in here, but I know your path also led you to the film industry to some mm-hmm. extent. And I know you're, young in that area and I know you're going to do great things but the two documentaries that you was involved with had a big impact you know not only locally but statewide and uh, um, nationally and one of them was actually uh, for an Emmy or is mm-hmm. that for an Emmy and that's the last one yeah the art of home the art yes. of home yes yes and um, you know the first one I watched uh, what was ours um, that had a really profound effect on me I know they uh you guys premiered it over here at the college, and um, it had some people that are gone now, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, made the trip with you back to the museums and worked with you, and what was ironic about that, I guess, is I did research when I got to the college at my position there, and Philbert McLeod was the first um, reservation graduate from CWC. Oh, wow. He used his uh, GI Bill when he came back from Vietnam 
to get a certificate in photography, you know, and they called him photo field yeah. for years. <laughs> and I always wondered why they, why they referred to him as that. But you know that um, show with him and uh, Bobby Joe goggles is also gone. But the wisdom that they shared in that documentary and some other thoughts. And um, what kind of led you to that area? Was it the museum studies background or, you know, the art the art of home is uh, looking at more of a contemporary process for, you know, artists, Sarah Ortega, and I can't remember the gentleman's name that Ken was Williams. filmed with Agnes, yeah. mm-hmm. Agnes Slogan. And uh, so it shows that some of that is going on. The old was kind of like the first uh, documentary kind of focused on our past, what was taken from us. But the new one is like, or the, the latest one was kind of exploring a new medium of artistry. Mm-hmm. What kind of led you in that direction from? You know, um, it was my journalism background. It was just, I met with um, Jeff O'Gara and he was, that's when he was back with PBS, Wyoming PBS. And he approached me and he was like, I heard that you can write and I heard you can do different things. And I was like, yeah. He was like, well, we're raising funds for this virtual museum. We want to know, do you want to be a part of it? And I was like, sure. And he was like, well, we're raising funds for it now. And I was like, okay. And literally like two years later, I remember he emailed me and he was like, are you still interested in this project? And I was like, sure. So he's like, we found a director. His name is Matt Hames. And I was like, okay. So then and he's the director of what was ours. So then I met with him and he was just like, would you be willing to help me? And I was like, okay, but what do I do? And he's like, well, you're going to be like, like a producer, you know, and he would just tell me what to do. So basically I was almost like their roadmap, you know, okay. like I would kind of introduce them to people who we thought would be good for it. And that's how that started. But meanwhile, I was doing my museum stuff at the same time. So it just kind of was perfect timing. Yes, it, it kind of worked out to where it showed your your transition also in that film mm-hmm. when you went out to San Francisco. and Yeah, and it really, um, it was a big learning experience because it captured all that, you know. And I'm just really fortunate that we were able to interview like Philbert McLeod and all those people who are Bobby Joe all them who are gone, you know, we captured that knowledge. And what was ours tells a story about the items that are in museums and how it's really hard for tribes to get them back. Like people think that, you know, NAGPRA is a law that's passed that was passed back in 1990. And people think that it's like easy for us to get the stuff out, but it's not, you know, NAGPRA is a law that only applies to institutions that receive federal funds. So therefore private collectors, different places like that, it's kind of you know we don't know and the institutions we do try to work with it's just a lot of work you know with my job with the tipple office you know i'm the collections manager so i help with the nagpra um i mean i help with the repatriations and like you know we've had successful repatriations repatriations with yale university of wyoming and those were good places but then we try to repatriate from the film museum and it's just been a battle for going on two years now you know they have human Uh, remains there Wow. And um, our thing is, is that we just want to rebury them, you know, and it's like they fight us tooth and nail for them. And the idea is always like they always put things back on the tribes and they always tell us basically like prove that they're yours. Prove Mm. it, you know, and but then that goes both ways because it's like it's a double edged sword because do you give them all the info that, you know, and you're going to share and open up all our cultural stuff because you want it back. And in the end, 
can they say no, but yet they still had that info, you know, Mm. or they're going to say, okay, yeah, we'll give them back, you know? And so far we've never heard, especially from them, like, okay, we'll give them back. It's just like, we're still like in limbo. Yeah. Also showed that, you know, like you talked about private collections and museums, but also uh, churches had a part to play Mm -hmm. in that, Mm -hmm. you know, they had collections also. Yeah. Churches, um, the Episcopal church out of here has a huge Arapaho collection. Um, there's so many places, there's so many museums across the country that just house so many Rappo stuff. Um, the University of Pennsylvania has Chief Black Cole's pipe. Um, the Smithsonian has Chief um, Chief Sharpnose's Sundance Whistle. You know, like wow. you see like crazy things when you go to places and you're like, how did you get them? And they always say they gave it to us. Mm. Uh just real quick for the listeners who may not be familiar with repatriation, um, can you sort of define that for us and then walk us through what that step is like um, and the type of work that you're doing o- over at the Northern Rapo Tribal Historic Preservation Office? So repatriation is basically bringing your stuff back from other places. You know, um, once again, we use NAGPRA as a as a law to help us try to do that. Um, underneath that law, um, institutions that receive for federal funds are required to send tribes inventory lists, mm. basically saying, this is what we all have. Um, and then from there, that's when you can have consultations. And But under NAGPRA, um, which is the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, um, there's only certain items you could do. One is human remains and the items buried with them. The other one is sacred items and the other one is um, items of cultural patrimony. And what that means is that um, that was whatever item that was, it was belonged collectively by the people. So that one person didn't have the right to give that away. Um, and our priority is human remains. You know, um, we try to get them back home so we can rebury them. Um, we did repatriations from the, the Smithsonian and... Um, People always ask these questions about, like, how do you travel with them, you know, mm. through a flu. And, like, basically you just put the remains in a duffel bag and you carry them with you when you travel. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty big. Like, you have to really um, protect yourself spiritually yeah. and mentally and kind of got to be in a good place to do it because it's mm-hmm. really heavy. So as soon as we bring them back, we just rebury them right away, you know. I, I um create different files. I have a cataloging system because basically we catalog them still and we just have a paper trail and show people what happened and this is the day we reburied them. Um, and that's just a way for us. And we rebury them in different cemeteries. Some people say, well, do you rebury them in the hills? No, because what if somebody finds them mm. and then all over again, we got to do it again, yeah. you know? So we, re- we rebury them in places where we know there will be. And yeah, that's our big big thing that we try to do there and um it's a lot of work a lot of mental work yeah sounds like it so if someone were to come up to you um say this person had good intentions but was just curious and they asked you why like why repatriation and why is it important for the northern Arapaho tribe i think it's an ethical issue because the history of museums in this country is that, you know, they were trying to model their museums off the ones in Europe. But the problem was, was they didn't have the items here, you know? So then therefore they started, collectors started looking around. They're like, oh, there's these vanishing people, 
you know, mm. let's collect all their stuff and we'll put them in the museums, you know. So therefore, and you have documents where collectors and anthropologists like would say they would dig up bones and stuff like that and put them in museums, you know. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's just an ethical thing. And to me, it's just like completing their life cycles because they're all people and they're just sitting on shelves, you know. And to me, the fact that museums fight you for that is still just a big thing. Like to me, it just blows my mind. But, you know, it's just we just keep fighting for that. And to me, that's just how to me, if somebody asked me that, I'd say, well, how would you feel if your grandma and grandpa was mm-hmm. in a museum somewhere? Yeah. You know, I'm sure you wouldn't be ha- okay with that. Mm-hmm. And the history of Jordan of tribal historical preservation offices is kind of relatively new mm-hmm. in Indian country, you know, since the early 90s or sometimes the 90s allows, tribes are allowed to create that. But everything before that was through the SHPO, you know, mm-hmm. yes. the State Historical Preservation Office. And sometimes the the remains or objects were not really taken care of in a cultural or traditional manner. Yes. So I guess um, that's what I see with your work and the work of the Arapaho Tipo is really incorporating that traditional and cultural aspect that probably was never there before, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of times um, Shippo, I don't know whether it's just that they didn't know or didn't care, but like you said, they would um, identify areas publicly you know, mm-hmm. and looting began and stuff like that. But I think with um, the work you're doing in Tipo is what it was intended to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. You know, like it, it is kind of new work and um, it comes down. This is what I always think about this. It's like, like this is a tough job, this is a tough field because it's like you have to step in a room and tell them what you want, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes when I first started, I was thinking, well, we can negotiate, yes. you know, and then I always remember somebody told me, they're like, well, what are you going to negotiate? They're like, just ask for it, you know? So now instead, I'm just straight to the point, you know, and just be like, this is what we want. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's like by any means necessary, you know? And like I said, there's, there's some institutions that are good and they're like, yeah. we'll work with you. And there's some, like the Field Museum in different places, they just fight you, you know? So it's just like, well, we'll do whatever we can. But it's just stepping into a room and knowing what you want and advocating. And that's just what you have to do. One of the, <clears throat> one of the biggest repatriations that we've had here on the Wind River Reservation in the last couple of years was the returning of Chief Black Hole's headdress, mm-hmm. which was away from here for more than 130 years in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it was finally given back to the tribe. Um, So yeah, just walk us through what that process was like and how you interacted with the family who had owned this headdress for more than 130 years. Well, the the individual, his name's Temple Smith. He's out of um, Marblehead, Massachusetts. And it's funny, when I was um, at University of San Francisco, we had to intern for the summer at a museum. So I went to the Peabody Essex Museum, which is in Salem. So literally, it's like 10, 10 minute drive from there, you know. So he reached out to different places on the reservation. I know he reached out to um, Chief Black Hole Senior Center and different mm. places. And um, it just kind of got bounced around, 
you know? So when he finally talked to me, he was just like, he's like, I have this headdress. I want to give it to you all. Wow. And I was just like, okay. And I kind of took a while because we just wanted to verify. So we just kind of went back and forth. He provide provenance, which is documentation proven that he had it and that it was legit. And then we just went back and forth. And this was like during December. And he was like, but I want, I want the headdress gone by, he gave us like a date, like January, like 16th or something. Mm -hmm. So we had a short window of time. So we're just like, okay. So it was just like a big flurry of different things. And, um, getting the paperwork together. We had to get insurance. We had to do different things. We had to think about how we're going to transport this headdress you know, in the beginning, we we're like, well, let's just fly with it. But then I got nervous about that. Like, I'm mm. thinking, well, and then we all kind of did. Mm. I was thinking, well, and then I had to think about it. I'm like, well, this was like one of our most respected chiefs, yeah. you know, and is it respectful to fly with it, you know? And mind you, this is like a priceless item, yeah. you know, like if he really wanted to, he could have sold it to a museum. He probably would have made millions, you know, mm. but instead he wanted to do the right thing. And how he acquired it, his great grandpa was a dentist um, during the early reservation in the 1800s. And um, he lived out of Buffalo and he would come down and he would work on people's teeth. Mm. So then he got to meet Chief Blackhole and then that's how he acquired the headdress. So then he, they, they said like literally it was just sitting in their family's attic. And then finally they all as a family started having conversations. They're like, well, what should we do with it? And they're like, well, let's just return it. Mm-hmm. So then it was like the second week of, January, we flew out there and we picked it up and we drove it back. Wow. Yeah, it was like, and it was literally coast, you know, all the way. So it was yeah. like four days of travel and like it was a lot of work. But, and for me, like when I'm working, like I, I kind of zone in, you know, and I kept thinking about all the paperwork and the logistics we needed to do. And then, so when we got there, that's when it finally hit me because then that's when he, um, he had it sitting in a box and mm. he was just like, because we went with different people, including my dad. And mm. then, you know, they obviously wanted to see her before we left. So then he was like, okay, you guys can take it out of the box. And then I'll never forget that moment. You know, like we just opened it and wow. slowly took it out and we took it outside. Yeah. And then like a big gust of wind came up uh. and then we cedared. And to me, it was just like, his way of saying like, I want to come home, wow. you know? So Amazing. then we took, we brought him back and the plan is, is like, we're doing restoration with it soon. Um, some of the feathers, I mean, think about it. Those feathers are probably like 200 years old, yeah. you know, and it's a full length one. So it's going to take a while for just different things to be repaired. But like, yeah, that was like a big historic moment for everybody and it just made me proud and we had like a public event at arapaho for it and like a lot of different people came to see it and people just get really emotional because i think it's like they they see it as something like um something good that happened Mm, and that needed to happen absolutely yeah especially in today's climate where it may feel like a lot of things are lost just Mm -hmm. to just to have something that powerful regained for the tribe it's like you said it's a huge win mm-hmm. yeah and we're hoping that that's our centerpiece for when we do a, our own museum yeah that's our goal you yes. know and like to me i just always think well the iron's hot now so we just got to strike and we just got to really like 
make it happen and um, build a place where, you know, we're, all of us are fortunate, you know, I'm fortunate, you know, um, you know, my dad, Sam Dresser, um, and I was fortunate that I grew up in a household that where I was taught about what it means to be a Rapaho. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is a lot of there's kids who don't have that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kids who yes. are in foster home or don't live in good homes, you know. So my goal is that we create a space where kids like that can go and learn about themselves. You know, even adults, you know, who didn't get to have that experience, yes. you know, just a place where we can go learn about ourselves and most of all, learn how we can become better people. Yeah. I would think, you know, you're, like I said, one of the tribe's goals is to have a museum, but I'm sure there's a lot of local collections or even non-tribal members that may have pieces that would be willing to contribute, you know, mm-hmm. once that space is available. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, something that'll be good with um, with future future plans. You know, I, I just, um, I'm astonished listening to you here and and uh, you know, I know your dad, many, many years, your uh, younger, his younger brother, Dallas, used to be one of my best friends growing up. And I spent a lot of time with Joe mm-hmm. Waterman, you mm-hmm. know, when I was in the Forest Service and worked on sacred site management, him and Anthony Sitton Eagle and Bobby Joe and some of those, and they're all gone. But I think um, I really feel you're carrying that spirit of that, of their generation also. You know, like you said, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. And I think um, you're not doing it for yourself. You're looking, like you said, the support of these younger people that may not have access to who they are and what where they're going. Mm-hmm. So I think you're, you're doing a great job in that area. I, I'd like to ask what kind of led you to the art possibility of your career also. Mm-hmm. You know, the the directing and the the artist and stuff of because we know a lot of our tribal people are great artists Mm -hmm. you know so Mm -hmm. i'll just leave that question now well i think art is really powerful because it's an expression of yourself Mm -hmm. and it's really important for native people because that's how number you know number one we can transfer our culture in that way but also number two we can tell stories about ourselves and like I, when I lived in San Francisco, it really opened up my mind about what art was, you know? And like, I think sometimes people have the idea, well, it's a painting that's on the wall. Like, no, it's more than that. It's like a pottery. It's like a statue. It's, it's even self-expression. It's the way you fix your hair. It's your makeup. It's your tattoos, your piercings, you know? So those are all art and those are all like how you're choosing to express yourself. So to me, like, um, I, I kind of looked like looking back now, I can look at as my writing as a form of art, you know, yes. and um, and with film, I learned a lot because it taught me the power of like an image with um, with sound, you know, because that was brand new to me because I was just a writer. Sure. So now all of a sudden it was like capturing moments with a f- camera, you know, mm-hmm. and like. The, what was ours, the first one I worked on, you know, I learned a lot. The Art of Home, you know, the second one, I took more of a bigger role. And um, I got to help with, like, different things, like editing, even the font and things like okay. that. I had a bigger say. So that was really exciting. And the Art of Home tells about the, the power of art and how um, Native people have used it to always express ourselves. Sure. So to me, that was really exciting and, like, 
Right now, I'm working on a few other documentaries. Um, we went to Carlisle Indian School. You know, we repatriated some of the boys that went to school there, yes. and we did a documentary about it. So we captured that whole process, uh-huh. and it's really powerful, and we're in the editing stages of that right now. And with that one, you know, I was once again kind of their roadmap, helping them. But then I'm getting ready. I'm directing my first film. Um, and it's about the missing, murdered Indigenous women movement. Mm-hmm. And okay. I, I have a lot of respect for that movement because I think it's like shedding light on a topic that we've all known about. But yeah. just, you know, the outside world has never picked up, you know. Yeah. And, but one thing that I kind of noticed, I felt like a lot of these women's stories were being lost. And they weren't really telling them. So the idea is that we're going to, we want to tell stories of four different women. And they're going to be about five minutes each. And we're going to animate it. Because the idea is like we want to bring her back to life. Okay. And it's going to be all first person. And so she's going to tell her own story. So we're going to work with the families and basically piece together who she is. Sure. So it's going to be like, hello, my name is so-and-so. I grew up here. My, my favorite color is purple. You know, and then each video would end with saying, like, you know, on this day I was murdered and give some details about that. Sure. And then we're going to and then we're going to tie it all into the national movement and how everybody's making this. Because one of my um, one of the producers who I'm working with, her name's Sophie. She came across this quote that was like I always think about it was like, if you say her name, she lives forever, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. to me, I thought about that with this. And to me, we're just, it was really important for me to have it animated because I just feel like it's been ever been done before. And it's like a whole new thing. And like, I just love the idea of bringing her back to life. Yes. What a powerful medium. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I'm always of the opinion that we got to start educating ourselves about ourselves in our Indian communities. And what a, what a method to do that, or what a medium to do that. Great work. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. And then just sort of bring in the conversation full circle. Um, like Ivan mentioned earlier, it seemed like everything that you were interested in and everything you were pursuing sort of came together pretty nicely. Um, and I think that's a really good message for the youth around Indian country um, and then here locally. Uh, so what kind of advice would you give them? I mean, you were clearly taking risks, stepping out of your comfort zone, you know, jumping at opportunities when they came at you, even if you weren't fully prepared to do it right away, you still learned. Um, Yeah. So just based on your journey so far, what kind of thing would you like to share to a young kid who wants to pursue something, but is maybe too afraid to take the leap? You know, I always think the big thing is like treat people the way you want to be treated because you're going to, you're gonna have you're gonna use somebody as uh, you're gonna you're gonna have to rely on somebody as you go, you know. And people are always gonna remember how you treated them. Mm. And like for me, you know, when I I was lucky that I found such great mentors who always guide me, and who always helped me. So it's like you have to pay it forward in a way. But and most of all, you know, like um, you have to always listen. You know, when I first got my start. Um, Journalism is really hard and it's really brutal, you know, because it's a job where you get criticism every day. You know, I always remember I had a uh, editor who like I wrote a story of all things it was about mosquitoes. It was a summer story about mosquitoes and fogging and, you know, and I just was like, I just want to get it over with. So I wrote it. 
And then my editor sat me down and his name was Michael. And he was just like, you know, normally when you sit down with them, they already had everything kind of marked up. So they'll tell you. And then he didn't had nothing marked up on his paper. So I was like, oh, maybe things can be like, you're good to go. <laughs> but I remember he looked at it and he just sat there and he talked to me. He's like, how do you feel about this story? I was like, well, it's done, you know? And he was like, then he looked at me. He's like, this is the worst story I've ever read in my life. <laughs> and I just was like, looked at him and he's like, he's like, I hated it. He's like, because I could tell you didn't care. And I was like, okay. And he's like, you got to just care with every story you do. Wow. And I was just like, okay. He's like, you have to rewrite the whole thing all over again. So I was like, okay. So then I thought about that and rewrote it. And then in the end, I remember he was just like, okay, this is way better. And this is how you have to approach every single thing. Mm. So, you know, I always listened, you know, and I'd always pay attention and I would always ask questions and I'd always be um, just open to suggestions, you know, because my view about this is like, you know, life's kind of about collaborations. You know, you got to collaborate with people and you got to like be mindful of yourself. And I always try to have good attitudes whenever I do something because, you know, your attitude is contagious. And like, um, so to me, that's just a big thing. So I would just tell people, you know, just be respectful to, to people, always listen, uh, but also don't be afraid to stand up for yourself, you know, and like, I, I still sometimes struggle with that, you know, but to me, I'm very quick to say when I don't like something, mm-hmm. but, but I, I offer good criticism too. I don't just say, well, I don't like it. You know, I'll just say, well, maybe we could do this. Maybe this is how we can make it better. And so I always stand up for myself that way. Cause I always think your biggest advocate is yourself. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that story. I think that's a really good lesson for everyone really across Indian country. Um, and before we close the show, uh, I want to do a quick educational lesson. Um, so as you've been working with repatriations and collection management with the Northern Arapaho Tribal Historic Preservation Office, what do you think for you has been the most powerful or maybe even the coolest knowledge or piece of information that you've learned about because I myself have been learning quite a bit about what it means to be a Arapaho over the past couple of years um you know the language stories uh and just history and it seems like the more I dive into it the more I'm like wow that's you know our history is powerful and it's amazing and it's like it's cool it's it's a really cool history of who we are so I think the biggest thing is that sometimes I learn something that contradicts something I heard before, mm. you know, like the field museum. Um, there's this anthropologist who came out here, but um, he would always study Plains Indians. But one of the people who helped him was a man named Cleaver Warden. Cleaver Warden is the logo for the Wyoming Indian high school. And he was fluent in Rappo and he worked with different anthropologists and he learned a lot. But, um, he would go to the different events and he would be amongst us as people and he recorded it all. And there's a book that was never published that's at the Field Museum that holds all this old sacred Rappo stuff. And like we're just look, looking through all of it and at times I was just like, oh my God, I didn't know any of these things, you know? Yeah. And I was like, wow, so this is how this was done 150 years ago, you know? So it just blew my mind. So to me, it's always like, you and and I always say this, that's what good art will do. It makes you uncomfortable. Mm. 
because it'll kind of shake different feelings and stir different emotions in you. And, but it's just making you be a better person. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Thank you for sharing your story. It's a really good story. And thank you again for the work you're doing. I think it's really important work, especially for us as a tribe to know who we are, to know where we come from. Uh, it's important for our young ones growing up so they don't have identity crisis, mm -hmm. you know, later on in their life. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Yes, and I'd like to thank you too, Jordan, for all you're doing for our community, our Shoshone Rappahoe community, and um, the, the role that you play. You know, I um, we're going to have you back on here again, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but I'd really like to close today with uh, what your thoughts are regarding this date, you know, the Rappos. I'm, I'm a Rappo also. Cheyenne's and Sue's beat George Custer today, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'd just like to uh, have you close uh, what your thoughts are on that and uh, how that um, affected us from 144 years ago. Um, it's, it's, it's nice that you say that because last year I went up to Little Bighorn. Okay. Yeah, and then they had like a ceremony there, okay. and it was it was really powerful because to me it's like you look at it as the power of us as tribal people coming together, you know. And to me, that's the important lesson that I always take away from that is is like we're stronger in numbers, and yeah, we may have disagreements and we may have different things, but at the same time, there's a power in us backing each other up. And to me, I look at that as you know a victory. I mean. You know, in the end, we all did end up on reservations, which yes. was the goal. Yes. But to me, it was still a win because we let the government know that we still are smart. You know, they like a lot of times I think people thought we were just dumb, you know, yeah. and we didn't know these different things. But we, we knew what we were getting ourselves into with these treaties. That's why we fought so hard. Yes. We knew what was going to happen. And we just fought. So it's like we never forgot that. Mm -hmm. And we never forgot that to this day. And it's like we're just slowly coming together with um, and we're making different moves. You know, I always say with what was ours, it was a film about suspicion. Mm -hmm. You know, like we were suspicious of these museums and how we got them. And Carlisle, the documentary we're working on now, to me, is just confirmation that like all our suspicions were true. And to me, I look at the missing murdered indigenous women. It's like, it's like, um, taking all that knowledge and it's like reclaiming ourselves. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the, the thing that we're in right now. And that's how I look at all this work, this museum work, this film work, everything. It's like, we're just reclaiming everything now because we know the truth now. Yes. And that's how we're going to move forward. And that speaks to our resiliency. Even today. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Yes, thank you for joining us today, Jordan. I want to say ha-hoo to all of the listeners that have stuck with us so far. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Indian Relay Podcast. We're trying to push out a lot of content as much as possible. We want to have a lot of fan engagement. In the future, we're planning some Facebook giveaways. Right now, we're planning a custom Converse beaded Facebook giveaway. So follow us on Facebook and be on the lookout for that information that will be coming out within the next couple weeks or so. I want to send another shout out to Noah and JG Pakotis, Just James, for today's intro and outro music. 
I want to say thank you to Porters for providing the Porters 10 cast studio. Thanks to them, all of this recording is made possible. You can also find us on Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and the 10 cast network website. Please like and subscribe to our shows, leave reviews, rate us. All those reviews and ratings will really help us to reach a broad audience. And if you like the content we're putting out and the message we have, it would really mean a lot for us if you would do that. Thank you again for listening to Indian Relay. And with that, I want to say wahe and ha-hoo. This is Cody Beers with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. YDAT is proud to help bring you the Indian Relay podcast and to partner with the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes. Our goal is to keep people safe on our local highways. Did you know that Wyoming has averaged 1,100 alcohol-involved crashes annually in each of the last 10 years and that more than 50 people die every year as a result of drunk driving? We can do better. We must. Celebrate life. Drive sober.